0: afternoon and welcome into another edition of Gateway to Baseball Heaven. I'm your host Daniel Shopdoss. C70 is about at C70 on Twitter with me as always, Tara Nichols from Birds of the Black and at Tara Wellman on Twitter. We are coming to you on a Tuesday, a little bit different. Uh, Oh, Wednesday. Man, the week's getting by already. Uh, It's a a Wednesday, uh, which is a little bit different for us, but we had a chance to go to St. Louis last weekend and talk to Mosaic and all that fun stuff and we thought we would come back and at least break some of that down. So Tara, before we get yeah, you know, let's just start with the conversation with John Mozalok, um, which you could also hear uh, I know the guys from Cardinals Off Day have talked about it. Some the Burbos guys have talked about it. There's been posts about it here and there. Um so don't have to just rely on our memories. But uh what did you take away from from things that he said?
1: Well, look, it's not new to any of us who've been in that room before that John Mazelak is a master of saying a lot, but not saying much. (laughs) And I continue to be impressed by the skill that it is to make an entire room full of people feel totally engaged in a conversation and heard in many ways and still keep everything pretty close to the vest as far as information that you actually want shared uh, publicly. So it had been a couple of years and I was once again uh, entertained by that reality that it's still very much John Mazzalek. Um But I would also say I-, I do think there's a tone shift in the way he communicates, even to us, a room full of, uh, you know, hobbyists, if you will, in the uh, news sharing world whether it's twitter or blogs or podcasts or whatever it may be um because i remember in past years talking to him where there was a bit more defensiveness about some of the things that did or didn't happen a bit more of well i don't understand how you don't understand how this is what's ha- what's happening kind of kind of thing and i did notice a few times where you know for example um in light of conversations about the uh, bullpen arms and how hard it is to uh, judge the value of a relief pitcher you know it's not as if he's never said yeah we missed on some before but this time he gave specifics and talked about uh, Sandy Alcantara and said well it'd be real nice to have him uh, in the rotation at this point so I kind of wish I hadn't done that deal Um, so there was a a bit of I don't even know what the, the best word is, a bit more of that, hey, I'm willing to look back on this and see where you might feel like we did this wrong. Because sometimes we look back and feel like we did it wrong, but that's just part of the process. Um, so that, I guess, comparatively to past years, seemed to strike a little bit of a different tone, Um just in in saying like hey there's a lot that goes into this and you know we have to think about it in a certain way but that doesn't mean we always get it right
0: yeah um although i, I do feel like he got a little defensive when i asked him about the relief farms um
1: well you did specifically mention tj mcfarland oh, yeah that was my
0: <laughs> that mistake. touched a nerve <laughs> yeah that that was my mistake so um And I should—I didn't ask the question the way I I should have. So,
1: that's okay. Um, I asked him about Jeff Gersh rather than Jeff Albert because he had uh, just finished talking about Michael Gersh, and uh, so you know, a little, little rusty on the the question asking uh, side of things. Apparently,
0: yeah. Uh, uh, We well, you know, it's been two years. Um, We had the Zoom thing in 2020, so. so there was that, and so far um, there's been no COVID outbreak after this uh, breakout this this one, like there was that one. So um, things are much better already. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that uh, you're right. He he's he's always been a little bit self-deprecating. That's actually what I was getting at in, in the question because he came in a couple, you know, in 2019, basically okay. saying, "Do you want me to go sign relievers?" Because he knows that signing relievers is not something that he's done particularly well, and I think we're Still seeing that to some degree, even though it was, as I said, once I mentioned Team Jack McFarland, it became a uh, a question of how he was good last year. So, but the, the, maybe that what's the process of signing him back this year, thinking he's going to repeat that? And right. we, you know, second half maybe we'll see. But um, yeah, he was, you know, he he's able to to do that. Of course, he's he's able to say that kind of stuff because he's not going anywhere. Right. I mean, yeah. he, he can I mean, he's not ever going to make a mistake so big that Bill DeWitt's going to get rid of him. Um, I, I can't imagine what that would be.
1: I'm, I'm running through my brain right now trying to think what that would look like.
0: I, mean, <laughs> I, I, I honestly cannot unless. I don't know. I mean, he. He he let Albert Pujols walk. Okay. I mean, it wasn't granted. That's, you know, that's kind of a, and that's a joint to de, joint decision between him and Bill DeWitt. Um, but I think that's, that just kind of reiterates they're on the same page well enough that he would have to go way off the reservation of something that Bill didn't want before um, he would believe it. So he's going to be there as long as he wants to be there. Um, and, I don't think that's made him any more reckless or anything like that. And sure. maybe, maybe on the opposite side of things, but yeah. um, it was interesting. It was interesting to them to talk about, you know, the draft and the draft process and how he was, you know, and he, and he pointed out, and, and we've talked about this. A lot of people have a lot of times, you know, the Cardinals are in what he said, the 24th smallest market out of baseball out of 30 um, and they have a top 10 payroll and that's, yeah. they can do that in part because, they' St. Louis may be a market, but you know cardinal baseball spreads over like eighteen states right. um, as you and I know um being on opposite ends of it pretty much um and the pipeline that comes through and the young players that they've come through so he he really seemed to be as he as he wanted to make sure that the praise and credit got everywhere, but he really seemed to be very happy with what Randy Flores has been doing over there.
1: Yeah, he, he mentioned that. And then, um, you know, there were a number of questions that were asked kind of from that launching point about mm. the development and how that works and where they think the credit belongs and what works so well and all those things. That's really what I was getting at with the question about Jeff Albert rather than <laughs> than uh, Michael Gersh. Somehow my brain mashed the two names together. um, Because I, I know that the intention with the Albert method was to kind of unilaterally create this this material, right this curriculum of hey, this is how we want to think about hitting And um, you know Mo, mentioned albert is more of the scientist than really the the technician as far as the hitting itself goes Uh, but they wanted that from the lowest levels all the way to the top so that there was a consistency in the message there was a consistency in the development and in the thought process and i was curious if they have seen that because we have we've seen players have success in the minor leagues i've heard that the players like the um a bit more categorized sort of success using this approach to hitting that, you know, we all are still a little mm. bit uh, unclear on what it really is, <laughs> uh, which is by design. They don't want other people to know their their secret sauce. I get that. Um, but that the young guys like that they can say, OK, here's my checklist of what I need to improve on and that will help me get to the next level. Um, but then we see guys who get to the big leagues and start to change some things. There's been conversation about how Juan Yepes has changed his swing since he first made the roster this season and things like that. So I was curious if they do see that consistency from those low levels all the way up to where it's being applied on a big league field. Um, he seemed to, to think that they're very happy with what they have gotten from Jeff Albert and what that process looks like uh, and noted that, well, now people aren't really calling for his head because uh, the manager changed and he gets along with him better and things are much happier. And I don't know that that's entirely accurate. He also said he doesn't read Twitter anymore. So he may be <laughs> missing some of the conversations. Um, but nonetheless, I just I'm I guess I'm, the the ambiguity of what that formula is makes it hard for me to say, yeah, OK, I, I buy that, that there is truly consistency up and down from day one of coming into camp with the Cardinals all the way up to, you know, the All-Star Game players um, with what that approach is. But I, I also understand, and he alluded to this as well, it's not one size fits all. Right. So they're part of that curriculum. Part of that process with Jeff Albert is figuring out how to take the same principles and apply them to a different player in the way that is going to make them most successful. So uh, it, it's always interesting to me to hear him talk about, hey, here's a decision we made. Here's a direction we went. How do I think it's going? But as I said at the beginning, he's also really good at talking about what that was without really giving away um, any sort of depth of what has changed, what has more room to improve, any of those things in the specifics of the topic.
0: Yeah, it was, it, I thought it was very interesting how clear, without saying the former manager's name, that how much was put on the former manager i guess uh, of what we're it on what it like, yeah it was not um and i don't like i said i don't think i expected that um and it really sounds i mean because you we have that we've had this whole discussion at the time of, that mike shit was fired and it really seemed like it was something that kind of happened after that um playoff game and listening to mo and and, and the fact of the you know the headbutting on with with Jeff Albert. It sounded like that was much more of a long term problem that they were just trying to work around than something sudden. And I don't think I realized that.
1: Yeah, that's. I feel like that's always going to be something that is unsaid but mm-hmm. intriguing to those of us who watched because from the player side of things, all we ever heard about Mike Schilt was what a great manager he was how much he was there for the players how he changed the dynamic when (laughs) his predecessor was quickly removed and you know all those things right so then to go from that thinking man these guys love playing for Mike Schilt he's a players guy he's an organizational guy he knows what this is all about in St. Louis um to yeah he was really the problem (laughs) feels very strange and very again um, missing a lot of details which is fine they don't they're not obligated to share that information with anyone Um, but it does leave you to wonder and you know I had heard rumblings that there were difficulties within the the field staff primarily Mike Schultz and uh, Jeff Albert prior to the end of the season but then it always kind of seemed like well, it's it's the players not really adapting to what Jeff Albert is saying or, or whatever it might be. Um, so it's hard to know what the context of that was, certainly. But you're right. It feels like there was definitely more than one single conversation that led to the abrupt. OK, we're done here. We're moving on. Thanks for your time. Um, don't come back. And yeah. that dynamic shift probably was more of a a process a work in progress um than it seemed at the time which also interesting in most comments uh over the weekend is that that's not really the first time that's happened either right he mentioned when albert left and Mm -hmm. the fact that their relationship they were not on speaking terms, more or less. It was frosty,
0: I guess, was probably a good way, but Yeah,
1: yeah. But then he said, you know, now he's back this time around, and it's like they never missed any time at all. So that sort of relationship crumbling is not foreign, I guess, and it probably happens way more often than we ever hear about, because when you're dealing with people – look – in your your question where he sort of reacted about TJ McFarlane, um, one of the things he said was, like, if you came to work every day, and you thought you were going to get fired every time you messed up at your job, it'd be really hard for you to succeed. So he has that mindset of, hey, I don't want to be reactionary in how I deal with the actual human beings that make up the product we put on the field. But he also then has to manage the business end of that, which is Hey, if this isn't generating results, then we can't continue to just do the same thing. Or at least, in theory, that's part of the the, the mindset there that goes into making those decisions. Um, so I can imagine relationships fracture very quickly when there's a discrepancy between results and process. And the people in place to kind of make those things happen, and uh, we got just enough of that, just a taste of how that happened with Albert and how that happened um, with Mike Schilt, and it, it it didn't take it didn't take a, a specialist to to know to notice that uh, there's probably a lot more to that story that he couldn't really divulge to a, a room of people who were going to talk about it.
0: That's right. <laughs> um... Yeah. And I think that, you know, we sometimes think about Mike Schilt as just being with the Cardinals for that three or four years, you know, but he's been, he was with the organization a long yeah. time and mm-hmm. Albert Pools, when we were talking about his, you know, he'd been with the organization for 10 or 11 years at that point, he'd been there as long or longer than the had been, you know, again, when you go to work with a everyday, you know, you can work with somebody for a year and it's fine. You work somebody for 10 years.
1: Right. (laughs) There's a
0: good chance that, you know, all the, all the things you look overlooked in year one are now the things that get brought up. And especially when there's, you know, some serious issues, you know, Albert with the the contract and then Mike Schultz with obviously this directional shift that they wanted to make. So, yeah, I mean, we don't think about it, but, you know, baseball is a workplace as well. And it has some of the same dynamics that people have in their own workplaces. Yeah, um, It's just a little bit more interesting. It makes it on the front page of the paper right. a little bit more often. Be more public. Yeah, <laughs> just a little bit. Um, let's see. I'm trying to think if there's anything. I mean, there's a lot of interesting things. And I've, I haven't gone back through the audio to, to really remember exactly all the different questions that were asked. But um yeah, I, and I, and one question I should have asked, and I should have, I probably, if it had just been you and me in the room, I probably would have followed up on on your question about Jeff Albert with this question. But I'm I'm still interested to see if they're ever going to put a Jeff Albert type person on the pitching side of things, mm. um, to make sure that the whole organization is on the same page. And, and maybe they have somebody like that. It's just not Mike Maddox, so it's not right. you know, it's obvious. Um, I don't know, but I, I've always found. That'd be interesting, but instead uh, I asked about TJ McFarland. And so, (laughs) yeah, no.
1: No, Um, I did think it was interesting. I can't remember who asked the question, but in terms of how the front office roles have changed in the last decade. And mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting how excited Mo seemed to talk about that and explain basically like, yeah, we're way more involved than we were 10 years ago. Like yeah. the the on-field staff and the front office staff are way more intertwined in terms of how they share information, what that looks like, and how it actually impacts the game on the field. Um, and it, I, I felt like that was one of the rare times where you see kind of like the the John Mozelek kid who was a fan of baseball <laughs> – So excited to work in the sport coming out where he felt like, yeah, I actually I feel like the front office gets calls from the manager a lot more often, gets conversations, gets in conversations about strategy more often or and he was very careful to say, like, don't mistake this for me saying I make up the lineup on any given day. But those conversations happen now where they didn't in the past because Mm -hmm. There's this idea of, hey, there's way more information available to a field staff than they really understand or they really want to process. But when you have an analytics team in the front office kind of breaking that all down for them, there's this understanding that, hey, there's something available to me that there didn't used to be. And the best way to get that is to have sort of open communication with the rest of the organizational staff, um, you know, whether they're, they're, Former players, or just the number cruncher guys, <laughs> um, and it was interesting how excited he seemed about that. And I, in talking about, hey, it's it's just like we have more tools available to us now, and the way that we can go about trying to accomplish the same goals, um, you know, we have access to more tools, better tools, different tools, whatever it might be, and uh, the front office gets to be part of the on-field process as much as you know just signing contracts and managing <laughs> the the clubhouse or whatever it is mm-hmm. uh making travel arrangements that's that's not the extent of their conversations with the players and the the coaching staff anymore so it was interesting that that was what he identified as being the biggest difference between his job now and 10 years ago
0: you also talked about the changes we've seen in the minor leagues too. Which is, I know it's a topic that you were very interested in. I can't remember if that was your question or somebody else's.
1: I asked um, a follow-up. Someone okay. else asked a question about the housing, but I did ask a follow-up.
0: Yeah. Um, and he he kind of did the same type of thing, right? He walked through, you know, when he started in baseball, you, you basically didn't have anything to eat. It sounded like, yeah. and, uh, you know, they didn't actually have food invented yet. Um, something like that. Um, <laughs> But no, I mean, it was, at he was talking about spring training though, especially, but it was like no breakfast at spring training, you know, soup at lunch, which seemed like a weird thing. Um, and, you know, now they've got, you know, at least something, but he also said, you know, look, we're never going to please everybody um, that even the major leaguers with, you know, almost a four course meal out there will still tell him at times that they've got to do better. Um, I... I don't know that that made him look as good as he thought it did <laughs> um, because it's still, it's like, I mean, because the reporting that we have, and I, we haven't, I don't know that I've seen it as much this year, but I've stayed out of some things as more, but you know, some of the reports in the past of, you know, of the food that the minor league was eating, there was a reason people would be complaining yeah. about that. It's It's not adequate. And I know they've made steps and strides, but I don't know that they've made enough that they can say hey look it's just personal preference
1: no and this is one area where you know as much as i have um you know i've been critical of things that mo has or hasn't done organizationally in the past and perhaps it uh, almost got me uninvited to blogger day this year that's uh, <laughs> something we'll never know um I, I do try to see. Uh, I do think he's he's smart about what he does. He has a reason for the decisions that he makes, or the approach he has to contracts and to you know rosters and and all those things. Right. This area is one that I have a hard time finding that sort of commonality of the idea behind it. And I realize I am still operating without a lot of the available information that he has. Um, But he's been asked about minor league issues in the past, and he definitely takes the ownership side of that equation more often than he doesn't. And what I mean by that is he answered that question um, in terms of, hey, you know, 10, 15 years ago, we didn't really know about how nutrition was important for athletes, and now we do but I can tell you based on pictures I've seen of meals for minor leaguers in the Cardinals organization, (laughs) um, that what they're getting now that they supposedly know about the value of nutrition, much less just like the humanity of giving someone a good meal when (laughs) you're supposed to be (laughs) providing it. Um, it doesn't, that doesn't correlate to what I've seen happening now. I don't know every meal that's offered at every minor league level in the Cardinals organization. But that is why I did ask the follow up, which was, hey, I know you are not every single day analyzing what meal is being served when to every Mm -hmm. single player in every single clubhouse within the organization. So who is essentially was my question was like, how do you how do you make sure that the overall organizational goal that includes the living conditions of minor leaguers? How do you make sure that is met? Um, And he talked about the fact that there is a a staff of people whose job it is to oversee that. And that if someone from a team reports to them, hey, this minor league owner isn't providing what we agreed upon, then it's their job or then it gets pushed up to his level to try to fix it. But again, that was an answer that sort of was like. Well, we're trying. (laughs) And it still didn't really identify the fact that there are are people who are really struggling to support themselves while they are being required to commit more than full-time effort to this organization that's supposed to be paying them. Um, Not uh, surprisingly, although I guess... There's part of me that's still surprised every time he says something about it. Um, there were comments made All-Star Week about the living wage that <laughs> minor league players are or are not getting. Um, I would love to know the commissioner's definition of a living wage. Um, because if it means they're alive and getting yep. a paycheck,
0: that sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: if it means any more than that, no. Um, you know, and, and minor league players, current and former have really come out in force to say like, Hey, uh, let me tell you how I had to live to continue to be a a minor league player. And look, we've had this conversation a million times. There are so many people who will say, Oh, but they're getting to play baseball. They should just shut up and play. Um, this isn't a hobby. It's a profession. And anyone in any profession, particularly one that makes the kind of money that baseball does should have the ability to say like hey why am I being taken advantage of when the problem I'm facing because you're not paying me enough to provide for my family um, could easily be solved by an amount of money that would sure lessen the overall profit but wouldn't really harm the people at the top. (laughs) Um, And that's sort of the the bottom line here is that there's this disconnect at the very top, whether it's the commissioner or the owners, or in this case, even John Mazalak to say, hey, what they have is fine. I don't know what you think the problem is with, you know, leftover hot dogs as the primary meal that our employees who are supposed to have at least one meal taken care of each day are surviving on. Uh, meanwhile, they're making, you know, their, their take home money <laughs> mm-hmm. is like $700 a month. And yeah. they're supposed to live on that somehow outside of the one meal a day. That might be hot dogs or a hamburger or like a piece of cooked chicken. <laughs> I mean, it's so it's not hard to look at that scenario and say, okay, are they alive? <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, is that really our bare minimum standard? Probably shouldn't be, uh, especially right. when you have the means with which to resolve it um, in a way that that not only benefits them, but also benefits your overall product. And I think the question initially was asked in that, mm-hmm. framed that way, was it you know, do you see this as a way you can gain a competitive advantage by investing in the living conditions of your minor league players so that they don't have to worry about that more than they have to worry about the work they're putting into this profession, not a hobby, this profession mm-hmm. that you're asking them to give everything they have to in order to benefit your overall product throughout the organization. Um, and, you know, I I feel like John still approaches that from the ownership perspective and, on that, uh, we certainly disagree.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, and I mean, it's not surprising that he comes at it that way, right? No. I mean, I, I get, <laughs> get that, but it doesn't, you know, then you're, you're going to have those conflicts and, and uh, disagreements. Um, and, you know, again, baseball is slowly moving in the right direction. It would be nice to see, especially a team like the Cardinals, take a more of a lead on it. Yeah. Um, like we've seen with like Toronto in the past and things yeah. like that. Um, and, you know, maybe, maybe 10 years from now, hopefully sooner, <laughs> but you know that we've, we we do we're not having this discussion, um, at least not to this level because those people are being taken care of. Um, all right, well, we've gone our normal half an hour and that's, you know, I think we only talked to Mo for 45 minutes. So that's, uh, we're covering most of it. Uh, before we leave though, a couple of things to hit one all-star game was this week. Um, Cardinals had some representatives. Um, Nolan Arnauto didn't go because of his back, which is a little concerning. Um, and hopefully a week off resolve that qu- problem. Um, Paul Goldschmidt hits a home run in the first inning. Albert Pujols walks somewhere. I missed it because I was running around, and it's like, oh, yeah, I'm excited to see Albert. Oh, it's already happened. Okay, great. Um, And then we saw Ryan Helsley. Ryan Helsley seemed to make, I think, made the most of a splash, even though Goldschmidt had the home run. uh, The fact that Helsley was out there throwing 103 seems to really have got everybody's attention.
1: Yeah, just casually in the All Star game, a couple of pitches at 103. No, like I said uh, a couple weeks ago when we talked, I was really happy for Helsley to have this opportunity and to kind of not validate, but sort of put an exclamation point on the work that he has put in to mm-hmm. be a reliever that can generally be depended upon, um, which was not necessarily always the case last year and i think that's just the nature of especially a young guy figuring out how to operate in that role um but then to do it like he did and uh, talking about exclamation points to uh have a couple hundred and three mile an hour pitches (laughs) pop up there certainly impressed the um the television uh audience and i i think it you heard it from the gasps from the crowd as well. So that was pretty cool. You know, I think the national league maybe could have done themselves a favor and let Paul Goldschmidt hit a second time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that might've helped them out in the long run. But um, you know, the, the all-star game is always, it's always something that I want to watch. And there are times where it's like, okay, this is a fun thing in the background. <laughs> um yeah. But I'm, Certainly, more concerned about hey, just don't get hurt, <laughs> <That's true. laughs> please just don't get hurt. Yeah. Um, and you know, if if Arenado felt like this is a good chance to rest a bit and be ready for the second half, I can appreciate yeah. that sort of decision from yeah. someone who has the caliber to be an all star, um, but was kind of putting the the success of the team uh, ahead of that in this instance. Also, just as a, an aside, um. Albert Pujols in the home run derby was a lot of fun yeah. even though it seemed like the it seemed like it, he was going to get just left in the dust initially mm-hmm. um but to see him I mean, I don't, I don't know how he put up numbers that seemed as respectable as they did, <laughs> but overall, it was a really fun thing. And I, I found myself thinking, man, I really would love for them to have that guy who's either retiring or just sort of a legend of the game in the Home Run Derby all the time because it added this element of, hey, these kids who are 23, 24 years old are playing against or or competing against someone that they grew up idolizing and may never get to compete against in any other way and in right. any other skill competition it wouldn't make sense <laughs> but in that setup in that scenario it just felt really cool to have kind of the the young stars of the game right there in the same moment on the same stage as a legend in the game. And I felt like the conversations were really cool. The interviews were really cool. The emotions were a lot of fun. Um, and it, it just felt like a really nice elevation to the home run Derby to have that sort of storyline behind it.
0: Yeah. I have a lot of opinions on the all-star game in general. Um, and they have, they could probably continue to slide into get off my lawn territory. Um, but one, uh, and one of them is, we spend all this time and all this effort to elect all star starters that get like one at bat.
1: Right. You know, I mean,
0: you know, you think about, and I know we're not ever going to go back to this, and it's before, you know, for my time. But you know, you think about when they had the all star games with Stan Usual and Hank Aaron and all that you know, usual hit an extra inning home run. <laughs> you know, he played the whole game. Yeah. Um, you know, it wasn't just a, let's get everybody, run everybody through. It's let's play a game like you would normally play a game just with all-star players. Uh, and I, there's gotta be a balance there. I, I mean, I'm a, I don't think we should necessarily go back to that because people do want to see their, their players come through, right. especially, um, you know, people like Pittsburgh or, baltimore whoever that just has one or you know one or something right. like that if, if they can uh get them in but you know i i do think that it's swung way too far over and that you know starting pitcher may only pitch an inning and um uh, yeah goldschmidt gets one at bats although of course maybe it helps when your manager is there since ronald could have got what three yeah. um so maybe maybe you just got to win the world series so <laughs> that uh, ollie marmal can let Paul Goldschmidt hit three or four times, then I don't know. That's fine, too. I mean, if that's what we got to do, that's what we got to do, you know?
1: Right. Yeah, I'll take it. I mean, yeah, for so, the All-Star game, obviously. Right.
0: right. I mean, you know, <laughs> titles. Okay, fine. We got to talk about the All-Star. Um, and your, your uh, mention of the young guys and stuff with Albert, which it was, it really seemed like a huge Albert Pujols fest out there yeah. all, all weekend long, which is cool. And, and it should have been. Um, I mean, I know Miguel Cabrera got the same type of thing for the American League, but he's not retiring. I mean, he's going to be around for another two or right. three years, probably, at least contract-wise. Um, so, yeah, it was really cool. You're right to see all these young guys. And I think that gives us the transition to the topic of the day because we saw a lot of pictures and interaction and a competition uh, between Albert Pujols and Juan Soto, um, who if you haven't heard, I can't believe you haven't heard (laughs) his his, is theoretically on the trademark because he turned out a huge extension with the nationals. And now apparently for some reason, the nationals are ready to trade him, which I mean, granted, this is a good time to do it. Two and a half years left on his, till he becomes a free agent. They could get a whole lot for him, blah, blah, blah. I'm still a little bit amazed at what baseball is. You know, it's like, Oh, okay. Well, we're so far away from this, Deadline that we have, but let's go ahead and make this move now. Um, it's kind of a probably a bad sign for the game. But anyway, uh, Cardinals, by national media and others, and by others, I mean crazed fans, um, have been linked to Soto. Tara, you and I were talking about this beforehand. Neither one of us are really getting our hopes up about this.
1: No, uh, not only not getting my hopes up, I- I'm not even really that interested in all the ways that this could possibly happen because the ways that it could possibly happen involve likely the Cardinals giving up a ton for, you know, a couple of years at yeah. guaranteed yeah. of, yeah. of Juan Soto. Now don't get me wrong. An addition like Juan Soto is massive. And for a team like the Cardinals, I find it very interesting because Even this past weekend, John Moselock talked about, hey, we had this core of our team for a really long time, and we're kind of in that process of trying to find who that next group is that will be the core of the team that leads us forward. And the Cardinals have a really interesting sort of... I don't don't even know what, what to call it necessarily, but yes, you have the... Molina and the Wainwright and the Puholses, who have been there for just decades right Mm -hmm. um but then you have someone like Paul Goldschmidt who was brought in to really reestablish kind of that that star that billboard type player um and this year he's playing better than he has in a really long time but he's obviously just by the way aging works (laughs) he's on (laughs) on the the downside of his career right he's had more good years behind him than he probably will have in front of him then you have a player like nolan arenado who again was a very splashy move that was like, oh, oh, the Cardinals can make a move like this. Now, (laughs) the fact that they got Colorado to basically pay him for an entire season plus to play for someone else, I still am not entirely sure how uh, how that happened, but it did. And so the Cardinals have the the sort of older version in Paul Goldschmidt, the established version of Nolan Arenado, And then I think it would be really interesting to have that young guy who also has that star power and the experience of what, four years already in the big leagues mm-hmm. to say, Hey, this isn't just a, a young hopeful. This is a guy who's been there, done that and is still on an upward trajectory for his career and will be for a, a, a handful of years, probably is he's, he's what 24. Um, so there's plenty yeah. of time to get kind of those peak years out of Juan Soto while you have the veteran experience of a Paul Goldschmidt, the sort of like in the moment stardom of Nolan Arenado, And then that, whether that's a bridge piece to, to finding what you build around him three or four years from now to make Juan Soto that future number one piece of this team, um, you know, as, as he gains that experience as well, it's very interesting. So I don't blame anyone for looking at this and saying, wow, this could be really cool to Mm -hmm. see the Cardinals make that kind of move. What I find very uh, comical, I guess is anyone who's saying, Oh, the Cardinals are the number one team (laughs) capable of making this trade. All that means is the Cardinals have valuable pieces that they could offer in return. That doesn't mean this is the kind of move that the Cardinals have ever made or would be inclined to make, especially when pitching continues to be one of their primary concerns. Um, So it would be a move that would deplete a lot of that depth value. And still not really address the primary concern heading into the second half as much as it would set up potential success for the future. And that doesn't really tend to be how uh Zalak and company like to do things at this point in the the season. So um, and they're also, he mentioned this week too, the worst time to make a trade is at the trade deadline because that's when the cost <laughs> is going to be so much more because everyone's trying to get something done before that deadline happens. So this would be so far out of the box that I don't... For me, it's not even a getting my hopes up. It's just a reality check of like, I, I can't imagine a scenario in which this does happen, even though, as I just explained, it's very intriguing. If you were to insert Juan Soto into the mix with this Cardinals roster, I just can't imagine a way that that actually ends up happening.
0: Yeah, it feels like when you have a chance to get a generational talent, a guy that in his first four years has been legitimately compared to Ted Williams with the numbers that he's putting up in the games that he's putting, that he's having like one of his worst years right now. And it still has 164 OPS plus. Um, it feels like if you have the opportunity to get that guy, you get him no matter what Your you know, yes, pitching is the most important need, But still, I mean, this is like you said, not only would it help this year because, hey, score a lot of runs, your pitching doesn't have to work as hard. Uh, And apparently they're sending Patrick Corbin, who is not good. But, you know, Cardinals have done stuff with bad pitchers before. (laughs) Um, um, But it, it again sets it up. But I also think about, what was it, two, three years ago? We're making some of the same arguments, the same issue about signing Bryce Harper. No. that it was a, you know, yeah, they had outfielders coming, but this is a guy that could be a, a generational type talent. Um, and all you had to do is spend money then to to get him. And the Cardinals, as far as we ever know, never really engaged at all. I mean, they definitely weren't front runners or anything of that nature. If they ever, I'm sure they had conversations with what Scott Boris is, his agent, right? Um, I'm yeah. sure they had conversations there, but nothing that went very far um that's not something that they look at i don't think um you know we talked mo talked about you know so somebody asked him this weekend you know when nolan comes out and says hey you've got to add to this team um and the fact that it's yachty and wainwright well maybe wainwright definitely albert's last year is there more pressure on you to go out and do something? And most basically said, and, and he said this before, no, not really. I mean, they're going to stick to their process. So just when, as, as much as they like to be opportunistic, I don't know that they're willing to diverge from this, you know, pipeline that they've got coming up, even in this situation. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and he talked about that this last weekend that this is a a pipeline driven team and they mm. need to be and they want to be and they need to maintain that um he did also however when asked about theoretical trade chips uh first of all I'll call it a silly question because uh apparently he does not like dealing in hypotheticals in terms no. of oh i wouldn't trade this person ever um because as he said it entirely depends on what the return is you know if it, his example was if mike trout is available I'm going to consider trading more than I would if Mike Trout wasn't available. Um, So I have to assume this is a conversation that has been had in St. Louis at (laughs) least once. And they have worked out what those pieces could look like and what it would do to the idea of, hey, we still need to have that organizational depth that will allow us to push forward in the case of injuries or in the case of, you know, retirements or in the case of whatever it is um building for future success as well but what would it take to move a piece like like Juan Soto from the Nationals i just don't imagine them going so far outside of their norm like you said the so far out of the box for something mid season that's just you know in the off season when you have time to work a trade for Paul Goldschmidt or work a trade for Nolan Arenado whatever it is To me, that feels like something that has been done, something that fits their um, process a bit better. Their evaluation of value and of risk Uh, mid-season, though, it feels very out of character for them to be the team that makes that big splash. Now, who knows? Anything's possible. Anything's on the table. Like he said, it's it's silly to talk in hypotheticals without having the actual pieces in play to to try to move around the board. So those, I guess, I guess the bottom line is the option is there. And maybe that's what all the national media is alluding to is that, Hey, this is a team that has the option. Not everybody does. Um, Mm -hmm. For an NBA example, there's been all this hubbub about Kevin Durant wanting to be traded. There aren't very many NBA teams that actually have the pieces within their system (laughs) to pull off a trade like that. And this is sort of the equivalent, right? The Cardinals have the option. Um, Does it fit what their plan is, not only for this year, but for the future in terms of guys like Jordan Walker, who maybe will be the next one Soto? uh, Who knows? Right. And that's where the conversation that happens in that room would be so interesting to hear, just to be a fly on the wall, Mm -hmm. to see how they really approach something. Now that it's not hypothetical, it's not just would you make a trade in theory, for someone who's really good, right? <laughs> it's specific <laughs> names, specific cost analysis. Um, and I, I would be fascinated to see what that conversation, what that argument, what that process really looks like for them.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, will the Cardinals talk with the Nationals? I imagine so. Will it be a very long conversation? I That I don't <laughs> expect necessarily, because I think it's like, okay, well, we want five different people plus you know all of them are you know top talent um and you have to take on you know this terrible salary right then it's like i I, it's very hard i mean unless unless the cardinals have decided to zig where they zag usually yeah it's i mean it doesn't mean i won't look at the articles and stuff like that but you know they're not I mean, if you if you actually believe this is going to happen, then you really need to temper your expectations because I think you're going to be disappointed. <laughs> honestly, I mean, to my opinion, I don't. I honestly don't think they'll trade him. Like you said, here at the deadline, uh, it seems like a very difficult thing to do, and much more likely to be a winter of of discussions. And it gives the, the Nationals more time to try to convince him to take it, all their money. Right. <laughs> um, so I I doubt he gets moved at all. Um, but that it's baseball and it's just somebody like that's available. Then we spend all of the oxygen talking about it. So. Right. <laughs> all right. Well, Tara and I will be with you again soon, um, and we will talk. The Cardinals have, you know, will be starting their second half here Friday night, um, still trailing the Brewers, but not by much. Um, and they get to open with the Reds. So who knows? Maybe by the time we're talking again next time, we're talking about the first place Cardinals. But until next time, for Tara, I'm Daniel.
1: Hey, Cardinals fans, thanks for listening to this week's show. If you liked what you heard, you can find us on iTunes. Just search Gateway to Baseball Heaven under Podcasts and click Subscribe. While you're there, feel free to give us five of those little gold stars or even a quick review. And tune in next time as we break down another week in Baseball Heaven.